electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Thank you, Jim. I'm Brian Sullivan. And tonight, why are American cities still so empty? New DTO reveals the biggest risk to their recovery, and it is not just crime. Call him the Oracle of Osaka? Why Warren Buffett wants to be big in Japan? Goodbye, Twitter. Hello, something called X. Elon Musk hints at his grand ambitions for an everything app. Used car sticker shock. Used cars. Stubbornly high prices still. Is that a bad omen for tomorrow's inflation data? Plus, the secret Bitcoin indicator that shows why it may be really back for the dead. And I guess it won't be a secret after this show. That and much more coming up. So belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. Well, hi, everybody. Good evening here. Good afternoon out west. We're going to get to all those other stories shortly. But first up, if you build it, will they come? When it comes to electric cars, the distinct answer is maybe. A new poll may explain why EV sales seem like they're beginning to stall a bit. A survey by the AP and University of Chicago shows that only 19% of Americans are very or extremely likely to have their next car be all electric. Another 20% said somewhat likely, which if you wanted to find the sully side up on this, it is way higher than current sales rates. It's about 40%, right? But flip it over. That survey also says about half of those surveyed said they are not likely to buy an electric car. And then a few people said, I don't want to buy a car ever again. Odd. The biggest reason people said no to EVs is simple. It's the cost EVs can cost way more than other cars. In some cases, 10 to 20,000 more for the electric version of the same model. An example, the gas-powered Ford F-150 Lariat version of that truck starts at about $57,000, according to their website. The electric version of the Lariat starts at $75,000. Even a tax credit, if you get one, and gas savings over, what, five or ten years? Unlikely to make up that gap. And customers, all of you, you're smart enough to know it. A new University of Chicago poll should be a wake-up call to policymakers who are trying to use laws and rules to drive consumers to something they may not want or may not be able to afford. How many people are buying $80,000 pickup trucks? Especially when it's those who can least afford it who might end up paying the most because perhaps they live the furthest out. But D.C. and some states are ignoring this and going 100 miles per hour pretty much in one direction. And tomorrow, the EPA expected to announce unprecedented pollution limits on cars. At least 54% of new vehicles sold in America would basically need to be electric or maybe hybrid by 2030. That is only seven years from now, about six or five model years that are being engineered right now. Is this the right way to go? We want clean air, 
But at what cost for reactions? Bring in New York City comptroller Brad Lander. He oversees $240 billion in pension fund assets. He's announced the plans to reach a net zero emissions investment portfolio by 2040. We're also joined by Strive Asset Management co-founder and Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, who has been called the godfather of anti-ESG. Thank you both for joining us. Brad, I'm going to begin with you, and welcome to Last Call, by the way. It's good to have you on the program. I think these are goals. Clean air, no pollution. I don't care what your political party is. Those seem pretty good to me. But are we worried that all these policies are moving so fast, they're just going to crush lower income people? So the New York City pension funds, which represent the retirement security of teachers and cops and firefighters, 750,000 of them, we're big investors in Ford and General Motors. And so we're really concerned about helping make sure they make the transition to a low emissions fleet. Some of that will be selling more and increasingly affordable EVs. Some of that will be managing emissions on the gas-powered cars that they continue to sell. What, but Brad, that's, what if this doesn't, what if this whole thing doesn't work? What if consumers decide they don't want electric cars? The survey said maybe half do, half don't. A lot of people who said they might maybe will change their mind when they do it. Are you worried about your investments in Ford and GM going down? That's why we, CNBC, are doing the story. We're not picking on electric cars, but if they lose tens of billions of dollars, that's bad for you. Well, for a while, you know, they've set a goal of 2035 to make the conversion to electric vehicles. Um, and so we'll see that play out over the next uh, dozen years. In the in that remaining period of time, they've got work to do to remove, remove, reduce emissions on their gas-powered cars as well. I am confident that it is both necessary and profitable for them to take the necessary steps in this direction, that they'll keep returning a good return to the investment funds like us who are lucky to be invested in them at the same time that they drive toward net zero. Because if we don't, we will all pay dramatically higher costs as a result of not getting emissions under control. Well, I, I, well that's the variable, Vivek, I think that we, people say, but I just don't know. Maybe it is true. Maybe it's not down the road. Time ultimately will tell. I guess why we're doing the story on CNBC is that for me, it's sort of I'm worried about the stocks. I'm worried about the investors in these companies. I'm worried about hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars that are moving really quickly in one direction. And it doesn't look like the public is fully there yet or, or will but, ever be. You know, let me just tell you who I, I'm, I'm worried, worried about. Vivek, I'm Vivek worried. first and Brad, I'd like to hear your response. Thank you. I'm frankly worried about the pension fund plan participants in Brad's and New York City's pension funds, because you know what? Fossil fuel companies dramatically outperformed the S&P by over 80 percent last year. They outperformed the very ESG funds that divested from fossil fuel companies by nearly 100 percent. And yet these ESG plans, including with, with respect to Brad, the one released by New York City, calls for divesting from exactly the sectors that even just over the last 12 months have dramatically outperformed. And I think that if you want to go to the public as voters and say as citizens, do you want to make the sacrifices needed to fight, let's just say, what I think is the current premise of climate change, then that's up to the voters to decide. But it is not the proper role of any pension fund manager or anybody overseeing pension funds to use the citizens' capital to advance but that agenda not, through Vivek, the back door. But why not, Vivek? Because money, talk, money talks and, and bull excrement walks. I mean, if you want to make change, you've got to have the money behind you. I think you could agree to that. 
Absolutely. I think that you should use your own money. But the problem is you right now have political actors in blue state pension funds that are using OPM, other people's money, to advance agendas that they couldn't pass through the front door, through the legislative process. And I think that's a devious and dangerous game, both for capitalism and for democracy. So I think maybe Vivek just doesn't know how the New York City pension funds are structured. We've got five separate funds. They've got 70 trustees. Those trustees are cops and firefighters and teachers, in many cases, elected by the very workers and retirees whose money this is, whose retirement security this is. And they actually make different decisions about this. Teachers and public sector workers voted for this net zero plan. Cops and firefighters did actually did not vote for it. So their funds have not set a net zero target. And look, I understand why fossil fuel executives and 2024 presidential candidates are worried about short-term, one-year returns. But I am thinking about a teacher who started teaching this year, who is going to work for a couple of decades and expect her or his pension to be there a couple of decades beyond that, long after climate change continues to raise sea levels and temperatures. And my job is to help those trustees put together a pension portfolio that guarantees those returns over the long term. So, yeah, sure, we're going to focus on the long term rather than the short. I understand why Vivek's trying to focus on the short term, but that's just not my job. And I don't know why he and others would deny investors, would deny our trustees the freedom to invest as they see appropriate. That's really funny because I think that the reality is let's talk about the long run. You want to know the very projects that the ESG funds and even large pension funds that are making the ESG push are divesting from? Who's picking up those projects? PetroChina on the other side of the world. And by the way, I'll have a little rude little surprise for you. One of the large shareholders of PetroChina is none other than BlackRock, one of the very firms that pension funds are pressuring here to push net zero standards in the United States without pushing them in China. You want to know who makes more money as a consequence? Just look at their latest financial reports last year. PetroChina makes more money. You want to know who's left holding the bag? Pension fund holders in the United States. So last time I checked, it was global warming. Why do you want to deny the teachers and cops and firefighters who govern the New York City pension fund boards the freedom to invest as they see fit and to judge risks oh, as they see fit? And it seems to me that you do if you're telling people I who absolutely they can don't. and can't fact, invest with. I think the plan that you put in place today explicitly calls on making your portfolio companies and asset managers align. That's your word, align their behaviors with net zero standards by 2050. It's the choice of our funds to invest that money as we see fit. But the laws that to you make support money, yeah. the pension fund investors the freedom to invest as we see fit. You want to tell me you want to tell me which stocks I should be responsible for picking? No, I, I, no, I don't think it's so. because I think, it's a Republican job, principle is, to leave oh, investment. Let's say, okay. I don't want the guys, gentlemen, you've been very polite so far, and I appreciate it's obviously a passionate topic. I'm going to cut in a little bit here. Brad, I I do want to we talked about the EPA stuff. But again, I only focus on cars because it's kind of what I know as a 30 year amateur car racer. I kind of, you know, understand the technology. So that's what I use as sort of my launching off point. Is it the point of the government, the EPA, who are not elected officials to be making these kinds of rules that, you know, for me and for all three of us on this camera, probably it won't matter that much. We could afford to buy the car that we choose. But I do worry that that the government is using these kinds of backdoor regulatory tactics to raise costs on so many. You, you live in Brooklyn. I went to Brooklyn Law School. There's a lot of people in Brooklyn that are not buying a Ford F-150 Lightning. There are definitely a lot of people here not buying a Ford F-150 Lightning. But this is why I'm so confused about this fight against the freedom to invest. 
All I'm looking for is the ability as a fiduciary to these five funds to bring them information and let them have the freedom to invest as they see fit. So you're talking about, and rightly so, consumers having access to the cars they want to buy. I want to make sure that investors have the freedom to invest in as we see fit based on, yes, uh, where we see environmental risk to make that determination. Vivek can make that determination differently, but he's the one supporting laws that would restrict us from making investment decisions as our boards believe are appropriate. Far from it. I think that the number one job of a pension fund board is to make sure that retirees funds are invested in pension fund assets. Amen. We agree on that. To maximize value. OK, not Amen. to promote For the long terms. Not Over the to time of our responsibilities. Not so, to divest from fossil fuel companies, not to divest from certain sectors by rule because they're undesirable, but, but to chase value. That's the job of fund managers. And I think that's actually everyone's free to invest wherever they want. But if you're managing not somebody according else's to the money, laws that you you're supporting, that wouldn't let me make the decisions that that our boards would well, would want to make. I'll give you an example. Last year, our true. boards brought shareholder resolutions at pharmaceutical companies that we believed had insider trading rules were allowing us that were now enabling them basically to steal from our retirees. But the legislation that you and others support would prevent us from bringing shareholder resolutions. That's false. On behalf That's just of false. Our uh, I think the only Not legislation false. I support is actually rolling back. Biden's new ESG rule, which effectively says that you can take into account factors other than investment return, which you clearly are. Do you, you think have, insider look, trading it, it starts, is a factor other than investor return? I think, Brad, I don't want to speak. Brad, let me jump in here, guys, and we're going to wrap it up. And Brad, I think I, and I don't want to speak for Vivek, but I think I think some of the frustration of some people, maybe some of your constituents are watching right now from New York are saying, well, gosh, if we had bought, you know, like a basket of oil and gas stocks last year, we would have made 30 or 40 percent of our money. So you're you. You guys Again, are obviously one year returns. No, I agree. I agree. But they are see- great for oil executives and they're great for grifting 2024 presidential candidates. But they're not great for first year teachers who are worried about whether their retirement security What's, will be there for them. I'm trying to, I'm, I am struggling legitimately to understand the connection. Decisions. What is the connection? I don't fully understand the connection of long term because you view ExxonMobil, you'll say is going away. Basically, first, I think there's a big risk to stranded assets. Second, I think there's serious liability that an enormous number of companies have. And we that's why we need to see disclosure. A huge amount of what actually ESG or responsible investing is, is just getting more disclosure from portfolio companies about what are the assets they're holding and what are the risks they're facing. And the legislation that President Biden vetoed, so much of what it does is just provides that information to investors. It used to be a Republican principle to provide provide information to investors and to allow trustees Brad, to, I have a question. to invest and they I have see a question. fit. And I just Do you don't know understand scope- why that's changed. Do you, Brad, I have a question for you. Do you know what scope three means? You adopted scope three scope- emissions targets. Do you know what Absolutely. scope three means? Yeah, scope one are the emissions that come that you produce essentially in your plant or building. Yep. Scope two What's is scope from three? the energy or electricity you buy. And scope three are upstream and downstream. So that if you're a car company, your scope three emissions are the emissions that come when consumers drive those cars around and burn oil in their gas tanks. Yeah. Somebody's so got to worry about is, that. Let's wrap it up. But Vivek, Vivek, let me ask you, Vivek, let me ask you a question as well. I want to wrap it up, be fair. And I agree with Brad. What he's saying is that more disclosure is always better. And can you agree, Vivek, that we need more ESG? Dis- I'm telling you, if I left TV today, like if I quit tonight and tomorrow, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to open up an ESG consulting company because there's billions of dollars floating around with unclear sort of metrics. Would you agree with that? The industry is still a little bit of the Wild West. 
I agree that there's an ESG profitable consulting industry because of these disclosure rules. But here's what I will say is materiality standards already demand that if information is material, companies have to disclose that to investors. So by definition, any additional layer of disclosure automatically means that you thought it wasn't material under the old standards. You can't have it both ways. And where's the China-related investment risks? Note the pin drop silence on that issue. No, no, let's try try, it. Not at all. I actually think China-related investment risks are appropriate to be disclosed and debated by investors. But this legislation would deny us the freedom to make those very investment decisions. Gentlemen, a spirited and respectful, mostly debate. And I appreciate it. Vivek Ramaswamy, Lander, thank you very much, gentlemen. Guys, have a good night. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Good night. All right. Take care. Well, we are just getting started. And up next, can Warner Brothers Discovery relight the streaming rocket? Tomorrow's maker maybe break announcement with big implications for Hollywood and your wallet. Plus, Walmart gives the latest red alert for American cities struggling to recover what they just announced in Chicago. That should open a lot of eyes. We'll tell it to you next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. The music gives it away. It's time for tomorrow's news tonight. And let's talk TV because we are expecting a major announcement in the world of streaming. Warner Brothers Discovery will announce a new streaming service tomorrow. Sort of. The new-ish product will combine what's already on HBO Max with what's on Discovery+. Plus. So basically cutting down two apps on your TV or iPad or whatever down to one, it will just be called Max. And it will cost, so should you choose it, about 16 bucks. Per month. Streaming has been a major goal of Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslov. But can anyone, even Zaslov, actually make money in streaming? Joining us now to break it all down is CBC Media and tech reporter Alex Sherman and Parrot Analytics strategist Brandon Katz. Alex, great reporting as always, my man. Uh, you pretty much broke the story. What can we expect tomorrow? Yeah, we reported way back in December that this would be called Max. Uh, that is what this is going to be called. Uh, certainly any sources that I have spoken to for months have told me that. So a lot of what, what is going to be revealed tomorrow, we kind of already know. You said the price up top supposed to be the same price currently as what people pay for HBO Max, whether that's with ads uh, or no ads. So that's either $16 with no ads or $9.99 with ads. Uh, we should get a few new content announcements. So expect some new shows. We we know that there's going to be a new Harry Potter series that'll be announced tomorrow, we believe. Um, I imagine there will be some content from the Discovery side as well. Uh, but, you know, broadly speaking here, these streaming events, they're kind of 
two years too late. You know, this may be the last of its kind to some degree. We've seen all of the different companies, Disney, uh, NBC Universal with Peacock, Paramount Global, they all had their big launch. And as you said up front, this is kind of sort of a new product, right? Because the two products already had their launches. They already had their big events. And now we're having yet another big event to combine these two companies uh, into one, which of course is the culmination of the merger of Warner Media and Discovery Communications, uh, which which uh, closed last year. I, I just wonder how much space there is on, if I say dial, I guess I sound like a really old guy. How much space there is on the dial? I mean, if I pull up my Apple TV, I got apps everywhere. It's starting to look a lot like television. Right. I mean, everyone assumes, not everyone, many people assume that where we're headed here over the next few years is a rebundling of these various different apps and how, how it will happen, nobody really knows. We're starting to see it kind of in company already. In other words, Disney offers a bundle of Hulu and ESPN Plus and Disney Plus. And what previous CEO Bob Chapek signaled, which will likely be carried forward by current CEO, also the past yeah. CEO, Bob Iger, you'll start to be able to get these services intertwined even more on Disney. So, you know, think about Hulu showing up on your Disney Plus app. Uh, Brand, this let me get Brand, this is let me kind get, of a bundle again. It, well, it, it is. It's what it's, I think somebody said, let's bundle them all together, Brandon, and we'll call it, uh, we'll call it cable. That does seem to be the course of action. We are recreating old models just over the Internet. It's not much. You know, old is new. Uh, so what's interesting here is that according to Paired Analytics demo data, Discovery Plus over-indexes with older women, while HBO Max really serves young men and women. And what, what the goal is, is to try to make a four-quadrant service. So while there isn't necessarily a lot of overlap between these two services, they do complement each other. What you can four, consider I don't know Discovery what four-quadrant service mean. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> old and young men and women. And if you can um. kind of consider Discovery Plus the catch-up to HBO Max's French fries, they're complementary. They go well together. Now, the hope is that that joint effort will reignite subscriber growth. But we've yet to see if there's a ton of overlap between Game of Thrones viewers and Dr. Pimple Popper devotees. You say it like it's a bad thing. It's a fantastic show, by the way. <laughs> no, but oh, I'm not knocking it. On a serious level, though, who, who I mean, Peacock, clearly Brandon is going to win. I mean, it's gonna, but who's going to have a second place? Are, are all these companies going to make it? Because you know what you do? You get people like you, not you, but 28-year-olds or whatever, who, you know, they subscribe for a week, they binge watch a show, and then they cancel until the next show comes on. That, I think we can all agree, is not a business model. Exactly. And the goal of this merger, for lack of a better word, is to improve retention on the new combined service. Because... Discovery Plus's content is designed to be binge-watched while you make a snack or fold your laundry. It's meant to improve and increase your hours of engagement and keep you in the ecosystem longer. And that's very appealing to advertisers for the advertising tier. And it's very appealing for a lot of programming slates because they are gonna keep you in there as yeah. long as humanly possible and upsell you to more expensive tiers and lock you in when they do roll out inevitable price increases. Yeah, we had all the services on the wall, our beautiful wall, and I'm adding them up in my head. Alex, I'm like, okay, that's like 75 bucks a month, adding this, adding that. There we go. Alex, Brandon, thank you very, very much. Appreciate it. Everybody check out Alex's story on CBC.com. All right, tomorrow, 
Tune into Closing Bell because David Zaslav will sit down with Julia Borston right around 3.15 Eastern. We'll talk about all this stuff in a Do Not Miss interview. Meantime, still ahead here on Last Call, the warning from Walmart that should have struggling cities around America a little concerned. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Let's stay on a topic that we've been hitting on a lot lately, the risk to post-COVID recovery in big cities. Today, Walmart says it is closing four Chicago stores, half of them, noting that the stores have never been profitable, not ever, years. This comes after we learned yesterday that Whole Foods was shuttering a big San Francisco store that was only open for one year. They closed it because the workers did not feel safe. Now, Walmart did not specifically cite crime as the reason for Chicago closings. And though it gets all the headlines, is it really always just about crime? Maybe it's not. It could also be about some of these city centers being so hollowed out during COVID lockdowns and then people simply not returning. Look at this data today from Castle Systems. They track office occupancy rates. And they noted that of the 10 biggest office markets in America, Office buildings are usually less than half empty. In fact, only three big cities in Texas had more than 60% occupancy, and that was on Tuesdays, the busiest day of the week, apparently, for in-person work. And look at that. In four cities, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, and San Jose, Fridays generally have less than 30% of their buildings filled with people. In other words, One or two days a week in some of these hugely important economic centers, 70% of the people who used to be there before the pandemic simply are not there in offices now. They aren't walking around. They're not going to restaurants. They're not grabbing coffee, whatever it is. And you've seen the studies that show that one reason why people are not coming back as much is because they don't feel safe coming into some cities or taking public transit. But we were thinking, Could you also flip this logic upside down? Are cities becoming scarier places because there are fewer people around? Empty streets can make bad behavior easier. So it's maybe kind of the office tower version of the chicken and the egg. Are cities emptier because they are more dangerous or are they more dangerous because they are emptier and we need to get people back? Joining us now is head of research for the uh, Policing and Public Safety Initiative at the Manhattan Institute, Rafael Mangual, he is an expert on this issue. Also with us is New York Times columnist Thomas Edsel. Thomas recently wrote about this very question in the New York Times late last year. So, Thomas, I'll start with with you. Um, What is your take on this? Is there one that comes before the other? Came together that you had COVID and the abandonment of cities, especially by high tax paying people who have the kind of jobs that you can do from home. And that came about at a time when murder rates were starting to go up, particularly uh, partly because of COVID, but also in the aftermath of the George Floyd protests. 
So you have basically a volcano of activity taking place, pushing cities uh, into worse and worse situations, and it gets compounded because the more people move out and the fewer people that are there, the less tax revenues they have, the less ability they have to fight crime, and public services, especially public transit, begins to take a nosedive, and people stop using public transit, which has happened very much so in New York, and that makes people feel even more unsafe when you're riding on a subway train when there's no one else in the car, you worry who's going to get in on the next stop. So it's really a vicious circle that is very hard at this point for cities to stop, yeah. especially yeah. in the north. You know, Raphael, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a bigger guy. I've never felt nervous in a big city, New York. But I'll tell you what, at the beginning of the COVID, I was still hosting a show from the NASDAQ. And until like May or late April or May, nobody, everyone else since 2020 was gone. And I posted a video from my car, my Jeep, driving in through the Lincoln Tunnel, two in the afternoon. I was the only car. And as I parked, I started to walk around. That's when I started to get a little nervous. I'm like, there's no one else here. Did you get my point sort of about which is maybe the cause? Do we need to get more people back to the city? Because then that might actually make it safer. Yeah, no, I do think that there's a lot to be said for the fact that there's safety in numbers. You know, um, population density provides some level of cover and some level of safety. Um, you know, I'm a big subscriber of the routine activities theory of crime, which posits that you need three things to be present for crime to flourish. You need vulnerable targets, motivated offenders, and an absence of capable guardians. What we saw in the middle of 2020 was kind of a confluence of all of those things. Um, you know, lots of people who were still in the city became much more vulnerable by virtue of the fact that you had fewer eyes on the street. You had, um, you know, businesses shuttered, and so no one was monitoring CCTV cameras or even really running them. Um, and, and so there was, you know, a sense that you could kind of get away with more in public spaces and, you know, research shows now that even though raw numbers uh, of, of crimes like assault and robberies mm -hmm. uh, uh, went down, the actual real risk that you faced of being victimized, if you controlled for the amount of time that you actually spent in public space, had increased significantly in 2020. So that also sent a kind of reinforcing signal that I think sent people out who, who might have otherwise stayed had the safety situation not deteriorated to such a degree. Um, and that cycle has kind of reinforced itself over time. And, and so, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. Right. And, I, and I want to clear something up for our audience, because I had a lot of people come at me on Twitter and, you know, politely, thank you, but saying, why are you focused on San Francisco? Why are you picking on Chicago? Look what happened in, in other cities like Louisville and look what happened in Nashville and some of the crime rates in Baltimore and Memphis, St. Louis. And we hear you. We, we understand that. But, Rafael, this is CNBC. So the reason that we're talking about San Francisco and Chicago and New York is because with all due respect to everyone else around this country, these are economic centers with hundreds of billions of real estate. And if these city centers in particular, Fortune 500 companies, leave their workers, leave office buildings, bring the graphic back up. Axios had it. More office space for lease now than any time in I think it was 20 years. If these get hollowed out, it's not just a safety story. It is, it's got to be a massive economic story. Oh, that's absolutely right. I mean, you're, you're talking about a major part of the tax base of these cities, which you know depend very heavily on that revenue in order to run the, the very high levels of, of public services that constitute one of the best amenities for living in places like L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, uh, and, and New York City. And as those amenities deteriorate, 
other destinations become much more attractive in a world of, of, of virtual work mm-hmm. because people no longer need to commute into downtown or, or midtown Manhattan in order to maintain their careers. Um, and, and so, you know, I think lots yep. of people over the last couple of years have taken advantage of this. I mean, you know, a family yeah. member of mine recently bought a house on Long Island. They were, I mean, pay, everyone was paying you know, tens of thousands of dollars over asking at a time because everyone was leaving the city. At the and same and time. As, somebody, as somebody who once took New Jersey Transit every day, I would never want to do that again. So I totally get it. But at the same time, to Thomas's point, then everything just kind of deteriorates, including safety. Thomas, Raphael, good conversation. Thomas, always appreciate your articles. Must read for me. Thank you very much. All right. Still ahead. Twitter Inc. is officially dead. Is this the start of the so-called everything app? All right, welcome back. It is now time for a quick last call watch list. And you can't help keeping a close watch on whatever Warren Buffett is doing. He's revealing his newest bet, and this one very different. He's going big on Japan, specifically on the country's five major trading houses. Berkshire Hathaway's upping its stake to them to 7.4%, an increase of roughly a percentage point each. Buffett says he may increase his holdings in Japan even further. Now, long-term investing in Japan has been eh, difficult over the decades. The Nikkei 225, Japan's equivalent of the S&P 500, has still not surpassed its all-time high back in the fall of 1989. It's ticked up, but look at that. But if you want to roll the dice and maybe ride Buffett's wake, one option could be the Japan iShares ETF. The ticker is EWJ. This ETF is kind of a basket of the DK225, seen a pretty decent gain of close to 6% this year. Something to watch. Erogato gozaimasu. Speaking of Buffett, tomorrow morning he'll be on Squawk Box for all three hours with Becky Quick, live from Japan. That is very cool. Kicks off 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Buffy, Buffett, Buffy, Buffett, and Becky. Just combine them. Big in Japan. All right, fresh news out of Elon's growing tech empire. Twitter Inc. is no more. According to recently released court filings, the company known as Twitter, the company, has merged into something called X Corp and apparently no longer exists. Now, the app will still be called Twitter, we think, and at least for now, but X Corp is a shell firm created and owned by Musk. Now, Musk expressed on Twitter last October that he would be using his purchase of Twitter as a, quote, accelerant to creating Everything X, the Everything app. Ideally, an app similar maybe, I guess, to China's WeChat, one where you can message social network, but also pay people stuff, shop, whatever it was. I guess kind of a, a Venmo meets Twitter meets Instagram. But is it even possible to remake Twitter into that type of a platform? Let's talk about it with Wharton School of Business professor Americus Reed and uh, Wall Street Journal tech strategist Joanna Stern. Both are CNBC contributors. Joanna, what do you make of X? Will it will it mark the spot? Uh, I think, well, it, it's marked the spot of the death of, of, of Twitter, I think, as we know it. That marks the spot. I think 
it has been very hard for companies to build what has been called the everything app dream because there are different types of things people are trying to cram into one app. Facebook has been the goal for Facebook or Meta. This has been the goal for many types of companies, Amazon, et cetera. In the U.S. specifically, we are all, most of the market share is on iPhones. And so where we really where we really see a lot of this activity, what, what Elon wants to make there, right, which is all these different apps, well, we jump around from app to app. And so building that all into one app has been a very tough dream. And really, it's, it's, it's not been the reality for any of the big social media companies. I will say this, Americus, whatever you think about Elon Musk, the man is not without dreams. This is 100% correct, Brian. I think that you, you never have to lose sight of the fact that it's always a brand building exercise. And if I were a rap artist, a rap group, I would hire Elon Musk to be my hype man because he is the king of getting people to talk about you. And so I think part of this is, again, this never ending brand building exercise of the Elon Musk brand and getting people to have conversations about strange things that he's doing that is either six dimensional chess, if you love him, or some of the most crazy, chaotic, unthought out things you've ever seen in your life. So depending upon your view on Elon Musk and the Elon Musk brand, this is yet again another one of these attempts to kind of initiate the conversation and perhaps set the stage to what Joanne was talking about to, to sow those seeds potentially to try to take on this, uh, this pretty uh, ambitious goal. Joanna, if you ran if you ran Twitter and you were thinking about making, put yourself in Musk's shoes and you wanted to do what he however vague it may be, what he may be inclined to do, what would be the first move? Well, I would say it's not related, but I would give everyone their blue check marks back. That's my first step as the new CEO of Twitter. But in this regard, I think the biggest thing he has to do is bring in the audience. If you want people to think of this as the everything app, you're going to shop there, you're going to message there, you're going to pay people, you're going to use it as a payment service. You need to have all the people there. And in the U.S. specifically, I keep mentioning this idea of the iPhone because in the U.S., the iPhone has the largest market share of, mm -hmm. smart, of smartphone operating system. Everyone's on iMessage. We use iMessage for a lot of these types of things. And so you've got to bring the audience. You've got to have the sheer number of people going there because a social network is only as good as the people there. It's like Yogi Berra said, right? Nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Joanna Stern, America's Reed. Appreciate it. We'll see what Musk does with X. Thank you. All right, now let's lighten it up just a bit and head to quicker than the ticker. All the news that matters in the world of business and one really, really small dog. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock and go. A district court judge ruled that ex-Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes will not be allowed out on bail while lawyers appeal her wire fraud conviction. She will begin serving her 11-year sentence April 27th. The Masters mastered audience ratings this year. They saw their highest weekend viewership in five years. 12.1 million people tuned in to watch John Rahm beat Brooks Kepka. Look at this. One of Russia's most active volcanoes erupted today. Striking video shows the Shivaluch volcano spewing ash over a 41,000 square mile area. Scary stuff. Meet Pearl, the Chihuahua. Holder of the Guinness World Records shortest dog title, and apparently, yes, that is a title. Pearl is about the same size as a dollar bill and weighs just over one pound. Watch where you step. More and more parents financially supporting their adult kids, and it's taking a toll. 
According to a new bank rate survey, almost 70% of adults have made a financial sacrifice to help their adult kids with money problems. All right, we'll be right back after this. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about inflation. And like we did earlier, one of my favorite topics, cars, because tomorrow the huge and likely market moving consumer price index is out. Now, the CPI showed a lower increase in February it was a reason to cheer a little about inflation. But here's maybe what you probably didn't hear. Nearly all of the lower CPI was because of just one thing. Used car prices. They fell in February from a year ago, down by a lot. In fact, used car prices were one of only three of the 20 things the CPI measures to decline. Only three out of 20 fell, and the other two barely dropped. This is the used car pricing index everyone uses, called the Mannheim Index, after the giant auto auction in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Here may be the problem. Look at the far right. Used car prices are actually on the rise again, and now back to where they were last summer. So if you thought you were going to get a finally a break on the price of a used car right now, it doesn't look like it. And it could hurt the entire inflation is coming down narrative out of D.C. For more, let's welcome in Danielle DiMartino Booth, founder and CEO of QI Research. Danielle, you and I were like on the t- Twitter at the same time last night, separately sort of talking, talking about this issue. People may not care about used car prices, but they probably care about inflation if used car prices go back up, what is that going to mean for the CPI? So, and, and Brian, I think to your point, we've been watching used car prices come up in the Mannheim Index in January and February, even into half of March. They've just now started to come down. But like shelter lags its way through the CPI over a six-month period, you don't see used car pricing increases manifest in the CPI as they do in Mannheim for two to three months. So we're actually going to see upside surprise potential, especially in that core in tomorrow morning's report that obviously the market has not priced in. If anything, I'd say that that the consensus expectations, the consensus expectations for a 5.1% headline are actually going to come in below 5%, potentially at 4.9%. That's what the market's been celebrating, Brian. But I, I, I wouldn't hold my breath, especially, I would add this, Brian, really quickly, New York City's 11% of shelter CPI. That's one of the last places in the nation that we've seen rising rents. So we'll also see that filter through and higher than expected consumer price index prints here in the next few months. Yeah, and a lot of our viewers are sitting back, maybe having a cocktail where you are in Dallas or New York, and they're thinking, why do I care about used car prices? Well, maybe you care about the stock market. And to your point, stock market is probably looking for a, for a pretty decent number. And if, yeah. we're, if we're rolling the dice on the – Goldman Sachs, by the way, just said the stock market could boom or basically slump 2% based on how the CPI comes in. If, yeah, Brian, if, you if we're Mac truck through their expectations, by the way, I saw that Goldman blurb come out. Yes. Yeah. Yes. No, and, well, if they're if we're if we're rolling the dice and, and banking everything on used car prices, that's a that's a that's a nerve wracking thought. It is. But we have to remember that throughout the entire pandemic, the largest driver of the consumer price index was used car cars, as small as an input as used car prices were, they had an outsized effect on CPI that got us into this entire narrative where it's not transitory. Like, you know, high, high inflation is going to stay around for a very long time. So we, we settled into that based on used cars, and they're going to come back with a vengeance, even though Brian Mannheim itself has said that in April, 
April, they in, into April, they've seen used car prices fall. Cox Automotive came out with a new report this afternoon that showed that dealer applications to finance a new or used car had declined 23% year over year in the first week of April. But again, we're not going to see that in the CPI report, and that is not how markets close today. Markets close today on a wish and a smile. Yeah. It's all about the 2011 Honda Accord or maybe the Hyundai Sonata. That's going to control what the Fed does. I love it. Danielle DiMartino booth. Extended warranty, Brian. <laughs> That's it. Buy that extended warranty. It always works. They pay every time. Exactly. Um, um, it's, yeah, hashtag sarcasm. All right, coming up. <laughs> is Bitcoin back? The crypto back above 30,000. But why? We'll talk about it. I think Yellow KJ was wrong. You can call it a comeback, at least for now. Bitcoin's recent winning streak is hitting its biggest milestone yet, back above 30,000 for the first time since last June. If you're not paying attention, you should be. Bitcoin is up more than 80% so far this year, and it's not alone. Other popular cryptos like Ethereum and Binance Coin are scoring big as well. Even the meme favorite Dogecoin is in the green this year and briefly took over as the Twitter symbol. But is the bull run here to stay? Let's bring in Bitcoin Magazine's head of market research, Dylan LeClaire. Dylan, welcome on. Um, why is Bitcoin? Listen, it was, it was at 60,000 a year and a half ago, so we are down by half still. But why the recent run? Hey, Brian. Uh, nice to talk to you. Yeah, the recent run. I mean, let's let's go through it. The story is completely unchanged here for Bitcoin, right? Every four years, Bitcoin, the fraud, the leverage, it gets it gets completely wiped out. 2022 was an awful year. Uh, I mean, why is Bitcoin rallying? Well, there's no more sellers, right? It's quite simple. Uh, the supply held for one year, two years, and three years is at all-time highs, 67, 53, and 40 percent, right? It's a, it's a completely inelastic supply relative to demand, and there's a growing group of price agnostic accumulators that buy every single day. It's that simple. It's a matter of flows. Uh, certainly, our equity markets and bond markets and volatility, do they play, do they play into this? Of course mm. they do. And Bitcoin's increasingly a macro asset. Uh, but the, what SV, SVB showed, what the depegging of USDC showed, what the Fed's BTFP program Yeah, what showed, is that? B, yeah, that seems like a BFD I mean, in some way. So I, I don't know like, how, I don't I know think if I can this, say that. I think all, how big of a deal the, is this? It seems like the government wants to create its own Bitcoin. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far because they can't create another Bitcoin. You know because, what? I, but you, you get the, the general direction, right? A lot of our audience yes. is not Bitcoin experts. Neither is this anchor, by the way. <laughs> no, that's that's okay. Uh, I think ultimately the story here is that Bitcoin's rallying. I mean, along with other cryptos, right? But if you're looking, the other cryptos are bleeding relative to Bitcoin, and that wasn't the story during the bull run for much of uh, 2022. These are bleeding out relative to Bitcoin as Bitcoin is pumping here. Something is happening, and what's happening is people realize they want to hold something that they don't have to trust anybody. They don't want to trust a stablecoin. They don't want to trust a crypto protocol or a developer. They want to hold a decentralized monetary asset with no counterparty risk. That's the story. That's been the story since 2010. And more people are just coming to realize it. I, gotta, I, gotta, not- I, gotta, I think I got to correct you, Dylan. It's been the story since 2010 BC. You almost just described <laughs> gold. I almost did, except gold, unfortunately, you can't send over a smartphone in 30 seconds in the world uh, for, th- for about a half a penny, right? So, so that's why in a digital age, Bitcoin wins. And not to have a gold versus Bitcoin debate because we could be here for hours. Oh, yeah. And right? you're going to generate but, all kinds of people coming out of Twitter. You just, Closets, people under the, <laughs> the under reason, the bent mattress, they're popping their heads out. The reason that gold, right? The reason that you know seven billion people use fiat currency today is because gold inherently has trust in that loop, right? You have to trust a bank, you have to trust a central bank, you have to trust intermediary. 
a gold-backed token, right, is just, it's an oxymoron. There's nothing backing it except trust, right? So with Bitcoin, you don't have to trust anybody. You verify, right? That's the breakthrough here. That's the breakthrough of what Bitcoin is. And people are just, you know, slow to, to understand this. It's fine. It's an education thing. But that's what's, that's what's unfolding. So Bitcoin, can it, where is it going to go next week, tomorrow? I don't know. Next month? Yeah. No one knows. But the story here, it's a, it's a decade-long story. It's going to be true for the next two. I think you know, we got to go. But I, I think Bitcoin's had like 10 or more 80% declines in its, in its history or something. Don't you know, quote me on the stat, but I'm directly correct. Dylan, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Learned a lot. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. All right. Very welcome. Let's go back in time. Do you know what happened 53 years ago tonight? The Apollo 13 spacecraft launched from Kennedy Space Center. Apollo 13 was supposed to be the third Apollo mission to land on the moon, but the mission was aborted three days after it blasted off into space. The reason? One of the oxygen tanks on the ship exploded while the crew was more than 200,000 miles from Earth. That led astronaut Jim Lavelle to transmit this iconic line to mission control. Houston, we have a problem. You probably saw the Tom Hanks movie. Now, thankfully, Mission Control came up with a plan to get the crew back home on April 17th, 1970. They safely splashed down in the Pacific Ocean. The cost of Apollo 13 and NASA's other space missions was enormous. The Apollo program cost more than $25 billion. Then, that is equivalent to more than $175 billion in today's dollars. But, it, hey, it made us feel, it felt pretty good as a country, didn't it? All right, you don't got to go home, but you can't stay here. We'll see you tomorrow. Shark Tank starts right now. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.